All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Hi, this is Nick Freitas and welcome back to Making the Argument. We've got a good show for you today. We're going to be going over guns, voting rights, masks, vaccines, taxes, all of those things that have been taking place over the last week or so within the news. We have watched people like Don Lemon on CNN so you don't have to. And we're reporting back to you on some of the things that you've probably been already tracking in the news, but some new takes on it. But we're also going to cover some of those things that oftentimes slip through in the news when everybody in the media is focused in one direction. And politicians tend to think that that's a, that's a great opportunity to slip other things past you that you might not be aware of. So we're going to go through all that today. But we're going to have to start off with Don Lemon's various diatribes on guns and mass shootings. Um, because I have to tell you, there, there's a lot of people within the mainstream media that are obnoxious. Uh, but Don Lemon takes the cake. I mean, my gosh, that guy's not a journalist. That, that guy is someone that just sits there and lectures his audience and treats anyone that might have a differing viewpoint as if they're an absolute idiot or a monster. And, and just listening to some of the monologues that, that he created in response to uh, the mass shootings that took place over to the debate with respect to the Second Amendment and gun rights, I'll I tell you what, it is difficult to sit through. Uh, not just because the, the guy is just overwhelmingly condescending and arrogant, but because the logic that he uses, if you can even call it that, is so tortured. Uh, and, and he's sitting there talking about common sense while simultaneously displaying none of it. So we're going to go over some of the, the comments that he recently made where he's taking to task you know, gun owners, he's taking to uh, task members of Congress that are standing up for the Second Amendment. Um, and, and essentially standing on the graves of anybody that's been a victim of gun violence in order to push an agenda, which would essentially punish law-abiding gun owners, right? That, that's, his, that's his primary solution. But let's start off with some of the comments that he, that he made, because I think this illustrates the, the larger, not only the larger debate that's going on, but how it gets manipulated in such a way to where we can't even have a discussion on it, right? So in, in one of his, in, in one of his, statements or monologues, he makes this comment. He, he talks about, we have the Second Amendment, right? And he goes, we have the Second Amendment, which is a right in the Constitution. And then right before he segues into his next statement, he goes, we have the Second Amendment, which is a right in the Constitution, you know, a privilege. It's like, okay, wait, whoa, 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 stop. Stop right there, Don. Before you move on to your next statement, you're going to have to clarify something. Is it a right or a privilege? Because there is a significant difference between the two. A, a privilege is something that somebody else conveys upon you. But it's something that they allow you to have or allow you to do. A right is something that you have a, the fundamental authority to exercise. So is it, is it a right or a privilege? 
Because, because you, before you move on to your next statement, we need to establish that. And, and clearly what Don really thinks is, well, this particular right is actually a privilege if he just wants it to be a privilege. So, so right off the bat, we have a complete misunderstanding about what the Second Amendment is on a fundamental level, a right or a privilege. No, it is a right. And by the way, the Second Amendment does not create that right. It does not convey that right. The Second Amendment is essentially a statement by the government that recognizes a pre-existing right, a right which pre-exists government, and the government is making a positive statement saying that, hey, you know, the politicians, the we understand that it is a right and therefore we're not going to infringe on it. It's not a privilege. It's not a privilege. So that's step one. And then he goes on to say right after that, but the Second Amendment doesn't require us to submit to a lifetime of mass carnage. Wow, Don, that's really profound. Yes, that, that is correct. No, nothing you know, requires you to submit to a lifetime of mass carnage. That's, that is technically correct. But the insinuation is obviously that if we do respect the Second Amendment and we do respect your pre-existing right to be able to own a firearm for self-defense, to defend against uh, you know, oppression or tyranny or terrorism or criminal activity, that, that somehow the trade-off is, is that we have to submit to a lifetime of, of mass carnage. And, and therefore, he, he's offering this, this false dichotomy, right? This, this either-or proposition. Okay, you have a right or a privilege, according to Don Lemon, to own a firearm, but that doesn't mean that we have to submit to mass carnage. No, Don, you're absolutely right. And so what, what we should conclude from this is, is that we need to find a way to respect that right while also reducing the threat of somebody that would use a right inappropriately to hurt innocent people, just like they could potentially use any right to hurt innocent people. So, so what's, what's the solution for that? Well, in, in Don Lemon's world, um, that, that solution is this, this idea that not only do we have to go after criminals, because there, there was this interesting back and forth where, where uh, Senator Josh Hawley had made a comment about, the, you know, the real problem here is not guns. The real problem is criminals using guns, and that's what we have to address. And then Don Lemon comes back on with this, you know, snide little comment about, well, why can't we do both? O okay, Don, well... First of all, what do you mean by both? Well, what Don Lemon means by both is, okay, fine, he will agree with us. Apparently, this is a huge concession on his part. He will agree with us that we need to punish criminal activity to include criminal activity that results in violence from the misuse of a gun. Okay, so, so he's going he's gonna to concede that point, right? This is, this is his version of compromise. But, but we also need to significantly restrict the rights and liberties of people that have done nothing wrong. So, so that's the compromise. If he lets us put violent people in, danger, in jail, then, then we've got to let him infringe on the rights of people that did nothing wrong. Okay, again, that, that's not a compromise. That, that's not, you know, again, this is, this is another prime example of somebody creating a false narrative or a false dilemma and then offering the solution is, well, what they really want is, is more gun control. That's what they really want. And then suggesting that somehow this is a compromise. We'll let you put violent people in jail, but then we also want to take away guns from people that did nothing wrong. Okay, Don, let me, let me see if I can, let me see if I can apply that logic somewhere else. Um, slander is a problem. Libel is a problem. So we could come up with a law, and we already have laws for this, but we could come up with additional punishments for people that engage in libel and slander, right? We could do that. 
Um, or we, we could come up with a bunch of laws that just restrict freedom of speech and gut the First Amendment in order to hopefully prevent libel and slander from taking place. And if Don Lemon comes back and suggests, well, no, 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 the First Amendment is sacred because he does that, well, then can I come back? Well, why can't it be both, Don? The reason why it can't be both is because in one approach to the problem, you're addressing criminal behavior or immoral behavior, slibel and lander, slander, and in the other case, you're punishing everybody else that has done nothing wrong in order to prevent libel and slander. I, I would hope that a member of the press would understand why that's potentially problematic. But, but Don Lemon, in his, you know, in his constant reminding of us to use common sense, doesn't seem to want to apply common sense to the First Amendment or to the Second Amendment or essentially to any other amendment. And it was interesting because he, he brought up, as he goes on to talk about how you know, yeah, you have your Second Amendment rights, but I have my First Amendment rights, and I can use those to criticize the Second Amendment, and that's patriotic. First of all, let me, let me explain something here. Um, the, the First Amendment is obviously in there to protect freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, right? It's there to protect all of those things. Exercising any one of those things doesn't automatically make you patriotic, right? Pa patriotism is a, is a different category. You can, you can use your First Amendment rights to say something that is you know, designed to not be patriotic. But again, when it's, when it's Don Lemon criticizing the Second Amendment, that's the standard of patriotism. But here's what's fascinating. No, no sooner does Don Lemon tell us all about how patriotic it is to use your First Amendment rights to criticize the Second Amendment that he then goes into a bunch of senators and, and uh, representatives using their First Amendment rights to protect the Second Amendment to talk about essentially what all a bunch of knuckle-dragging idiots they are. And, and he goes in and he uses Senator Ted Cruz as an example. Ted Cruz uh, gave a speech during a Senate committee hearing where he was talking about, you know, this happens every single time. Somebody uses a gun inappropriately. They use it for an evil purpose. And the Democratic response to that is, well, let, let's ban people that didn't use it for an evil purpose. Let's, let's ban them or let's make it more difficult for them to get those uh, firearms. He talks about Congressman uh, Bo or Congresswoman Boebert who is a big advocate for the Second Amendment. She stands up for it. In her personal life, she stands up for it as a, as a member of Congress. Uh, he, he trashes uh, Congressman uh, Hawthorne, who also talked about the whole reason why we have the Second Amendment is not to protect your, your right to hunt. Right? It's, it's about to be able to protect yourself from tyranny, from oppression. And then Don Lemon goes into this, this, this you know, reply where he just looks at the camera as if, how, how could you be so stupid? as to think that tyranny or oppression is a problem. Well, I don't know, Don, how about we use, how about we use the example in, in, of Martin Luther King? Democrats put into, a, in, into play in the South during the Jim Crow era a bunch of gun control laws. And, and let me explain to you how those gun control laws were applied by racist members of the government, right? If you were a member of the Ku Klux Klan and you wanted a gun permit, you got one. But if you were Martin Luther King that wanted a concealed carry permit after his house was firebombed, you were denied. Right? That's the sort of oppression and tyranny. Right? We're, we're not just talking about the, this idea that the government is going to send the 82nd Airborne Division into your neighborhood to oppress you. Right? It doesn't necessarily need to rise to that level. We saw all over the Jim Crow era South, when Democrats were in control of that, that oppression was used on a local level when they were allowing Klan members to own firearms, but they weren't allowing 
black Americans to own firearms. And then when they called the sheriff, they wanted to show up to defend him. That is also a version of oppression that the Second Amendment is designed to help people resist. So, so before, you go, before you go just dismissing what these people in Congress are actually putting forward, here's an idea. Why don't you just do a, a quick jot through the history of our own country's gun control laws and see how they can be used as a tool of oppression in order to hold people down? Now, it didn't stop there, right? He, he, he made a couple other comments that were, were made for, to have this emotional appeal, but when you, when you look at them, they're just vacuous, right? He said, you know, we know what happens after every mass shooting, another mass shooting. Well, okay, Don, yes, by definition, with respect to how time works, if, if one mass shooting takes place and then later on another mass shooting take place, then yes, that mass shooting took place after another mass shooting. You're, you're, he's absolutely correct. No one has figured out time travel yet to go back and commit a mass shooting before the previous mass shooting. No, no one's figured out how to do that. And then he talks about how the, the right is ramping up the rhetoric without wanting to do anything to address gun violence. Okay, question, Don. A second ago, in, in one statement, you admit that the right does want to do something about gun violence. Specifically, they want to target the people that are using guns for evil and criminal purposes. That, that is by definition, and you've acknowledged it, what the right would like to do about not only gun violence, but any sort of violence. But then you come right back and you say that oh, we don't want to do anything. Is, is that ramping up rhetoric? I mean, it sounds like it is to me. You're, you're deliberately, you're not only misrepresenting how conservatives or how advocates of the Second Amendment not only feel about the Second Amendment, but also about when guns are used inappropriately. You would already previously acknowledge that, yes, we want to do something about it, but because it's not what, because we don't want to do what you want to do about it, we want to do nothing, right? Again, it's, the, it's that other false dichotomy. Either do what I want or you don't want to do anything. It's absolutely absurd. And, and he, <laughs> I love it when he says, you know, shortly after making all of these comments, he goes, are you being manipulated? And he's doing this in reference to members of, uh, you know, Republican members of Congress having campaign ads or having videos where it features them with firearms. And he talks about these firearms used to kill people. First of all, Don, the firearm that they're holding right now wasn't used to kill anybody. Okay? It wasn't used to kill anybody. But he says, are you being manipulated? The answer to that question is, yes, Don, we are being manipulated by people like you who make contradictory statements within the same nine-minute video you put out on CNN. You are actively engaging in manipulation where one minute you call the Second Amendment a right, the next you call it a privilege. When one minute you say exercising your First Amendment rights to trash the Second Amendment is patriotic, but using your First Amendment rights to defend the Second Amendment is somehow stupid or lacks common sense. When you, when you acknowledge in one minute that the right does want to do something about gun violence, namely by putting violent people behind bars, and then come back the next minute and say, that they don't want to do anything about it if they don't want to do what you want to do about it. Yes, you are actively engaging in manipulation, Don. That's what you're doing. Dressed up as, I guess, objective journalism? I mean, just absolutely pretentious and intellectually dishonest. But I, I thought one of the things that was most interesting is when Dan Rather was on, and Dan Rather was making a comparison of legislation to restrict gun laws, or excuse me, legislation to advance gun laws and the civil rights movement. 
I think that is a fair comparison. When we're talking about the Second Amendment, we are talking about civil rights. And once again, Don Lemon and the Democrats are on the wrong side of the issue. Just like they've been for most of their party's history. Like 150 years, more than that. More than that of Democrats being on the wrong side of civil rights. And now we're, we're, supposed to just, we're, we're supposed to just assume that this time they're on the right side of civil rights? Well, because Don Lemon says so? Because, because Don Lemon will, will attempt to make us look stupid or ignorant or that we don't care if we don't want to gut the Second Amendment? Despite the fact that those increased gun laws in other countries have not reduced violence. Because that should be the overall objective, right? Reducing violence against innocent people regardless of the implement they use to carry out that violence. That should be our objective. But I, I think he, he finishes out, I mean, if he, if he couldn't get any more disingenuous, he finishes out where he, he honestly asked the question, I could not believe this. And he said, who really wants to take your guns? Right? Nobody wants to take your guns. And he, and he goes off about how, you know, for eight years, it was Obama wanted to take your guns. Nobody took your guns. So here's what he's saying. And this is important to understand because this is going to help you when you actually make the argument because this is the sort of disingenuous argument that the left is making with respect to the Second Amendment, especially when they say no one wants to take your guns. First of all, that is a lie. That is a flat-out lie. Here in the Virginia General Assembly, Mark Levine, Delegate Mark Levine, carried a bill that included gun confiscation. Now, he came back and he said, no, 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 confiscation appears nowhere in the bill. Oh, yeah, that's right. Thanks, Mark. What you actually did was say that if you own a particular gun, like an AR-15, or a magazine that carries over 12 rounds, or, or any number of other rifles, and you don't turn them in by a certain time period, you're now a criminal. Okay, so you, you're absolutely right, Mark. Your bill doesn't say that you're going to come and take our guns. It just says that if we have them past a certain date, we're now a criminal. That's the same with gun confiscation. It's the same thing. So... Do they want to take our guns? They absolutely want to take our guns. What Don Lemon is trying to suggest right now is that because they haven't done it yet, therefore that's evidence that no one wants to do it. Let me give you an equivalent argument. Someone tries to break in my house and rob me and take my stuff. I prevent them from doing so. And as they run off, Don Lemon comes in and goes, see, no one wants to take your stuff because you weren't actually robbed. No, Don, someone wanted to take my stuff it's just that somebody else prevented them from doing so. So yes, you do want to take our guns. It's just that somebody else is preventing you from doing so. So you don't get to use the fact that you haven't accomplished your mission yet as evidence that you don't have a mission. You do. You've been clear about it. Democrat legislators have been clear about it. And the general said that bill passed out of the House of Delegates. It might have died in the Senate. Does that mean that every single Democrat legislator, which was almost all of them, except for, I think, four, does that mean none of them wanted to take our guns? Because they voted that way. Simply because you haven't accomplished your end state doesn't mean you don't have the end state, Don. So just try a little bit of intellectual honesty. How about that? If we really want to be honest in this debate and talk about trade-offs between liberty and tyranny, if we really want to talk about trade-offs between individual liberty and government control and power, maybe we should start with you guys actually being honest about what it is you, you really want. Because something tells me if the Senate passed every single gun control measure 
that they wanted, if they got every single one of them passed through the Senate, got rid of the filibuster, passed it all through, something tells me Don Lemon would not be coming back and saying, okay, good, we're, we're good now, no more problems. No, you'd be back next year with a different bill. You'd be back, back the year after that with another bill. Because that's what you really want. So spare me. All right, let, let's move on to another one. And, and Don Lemon's included in this as well, but there's a lot of other people talking about this, voting laws. So obviously after the last election, there's a lot of people that are concerned with respect to the integrity of elections. Now, the Democrats want you to believe that that's all because Donald Trump and Republicans have ramped up this you know, unnecessary fervor about you know, election fraud. And so it's all our fault. That there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with election law. There's actually nothing wrong with, with what's going on with respect to how ballots are cast or how ballots are, are counted or nothing wrong with that. It's just that Republicans are sore losers. And so we brought that up. Here's what I find interesting. In the same breath, they will talk about how Stacey Abrams, who lost her race for governor in Georgia, was robbed. That election was stolen from her because of voter suppression, because of problems within our voting system. I mean, they went around actually calling her and introducing her places as the governor, right? But no, 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 we're, we're all supposed to ignore that now because the last election results turned out the way they wanted. So when it doesn't turn out the way they want, then there, there's massive problems within voting rights and our voting system. When it does turn out the way they want, anybody that brings up any sort of concern with respect to voting rights is, is an absolute threat to our democracy. So what did they actually pass? Because Lemon actually said, there was a Chiron on CNN that said, Kemp signs bill that is about nothing less than taking away your right to vote. Really? So, so was that in the bill? I mean, that seems pretty straightforward. Was that in the bill? So what was actually in this bill? Well, it required things like voter ID laws. It said that it, you, you can't go out to a polling location and you know, hand out food to people that are, that are standing in line. Right? And, and look, we can argue all day long whether it's, it's a, is it appropriate to give someone a cup of coffee when they're standing in line to vote? Is it inappropriate? You can do that. But a lot of it had to do with, with voter ID laws. It had to do with how you submit an absentee ballot. It had to do with how long early voting takes place. Right, because there are some problems with that. I mean, we even saw in the last election after one of the early voting was taking early, uh, place so early in some places that we, we hadn't even gotten through all the presidential debates. And one of the most commonly searched Google terms after one of the presidential debates was, how do I change my vote? And it turns out most states don't allow you to change it. Once it's cast, it's cast. So early voting can be a problem. And, and the, the more things you have in place, like early voting or mail-in balloting or... or not requiring someone to actually show a photo ID, the, the higher propensity there is for voter fraud to actually affect an election outcome. Now, again, I think it should be easy to vote. I think it should be absolutely easy for a law-abiding citizen, a legal citizen, someone that can legally cast a ballot, to be able to do so. That's why I voted for bills like no excuse absentee. Right? I've, I've, you know, I, I've voted to make it easier for people to be able to vote. I believe in that. But by the same token, if you've created a system where it's, in, it's very easy to manipulate, things like same-day voter registration, where somebody can literally go to like five or six different poll locations where they don't have the capacity to determine whether or not you're actually legally allowed to vote within the jurisdiction you're voting, that creates problems within the system. And, and so coming up with mechanisms where we say, no, you, you've got to register to vote in, in enough time so that we can actually validate that you are legally permitted to vote in the jurisdiction that you're voting in, Right, don't tell me that that is a nothing less than taking away your right to vote. 
That's absurd. And, and they continue on with this narrative that Republicans wanted to be harder to vote than to own a gun. Really? Okay, you show me the state where every time you vote, you got to go get a background check. You show me the state that, that, that puts up the same sort of barriers to owning a firearm or purchasing a firearm. It's, last time I checked, we, we make it pretty easy to vote in this country. I, I don't care what state you're in. Some states it's easier than other states. But we make it pretty easy to vote. You go to the DMV in a lot of places, they have what they call motor voter laws, which says that you, you get your driver's license, you can automatically be registered to vote. Can you do that with guns? Hey, I'm getting to get my driver's license, and oh, oh, by the way, here's all my information, so anytime I want to buy a gun now, I don't have to go through this process again, right? No, that doesn't exist. So why do they keep perpetuating that lie? Well, because they're desperate to, to convince you that any sort of law that we have that, that provides us some sort of mechanism to make sure that, that, that the person voting is legally allowed to vote, it is somehow some sort of drastic infringement on voting rights. If you, if you want to go back in history and look at which political parties actually supported voting rights and which ones didn't, the Democratic Party does not have a good history on this. They just simply do not. And so, again, you, you, go, you can go look at, at uh, the bill that Kemp signed. They made a big deal about the fact that there was a legislator that started pounding on the door and refused to leave in the moment that he was actually holding the press conference and signing it. So... She was removed from the premises because she refused to leave, and she was arrested. Now, again, we can debate all day long. Was that, was that excessive? Was that taking it too far? I, I'm happy to have that debate. I'm happy to have that discussion. But I'm not surprised when, when people have a false impression of what the bill actually did because you have people like Don Lemon essentially telling you that Georgia just did a bill to take away your voting rights. Yeah, no, it didn't. No, it didn't. And, and you don't get to claim one second when it's Stacey Abrams losing the election in Georgia that there's massive problems with respect to voting. And then the next minute say that anytime a Republican is concerned, that, that that doesn't count, that we're just a threat to democracy. Let's look at the next thing here, um, taxes. So this is, what I find interesting about this is obviously right now a lot of the news is focused around, you know, the voting laws that just passed in Georgia. It's focused around um, the bills that are going through um, the Senate right now and the whole filibuster and, and gun control. But the other thing that you need to know is that not only the federal government, but state governments are now talking about drastically increasing taxes. And I'm going to use New York as an example here because New York obviously has very high taxes, a very high you know, regulatory um, you know, burdens to, to get through in order to start a business and operate a business. Um, so let's, let's see what the overall results of this high tax, high regulation environment has been in New York, right? So 16,000 New York residents changed their address to Connecticut in the last year. 70,000 left the New York City area in 2020, taking with them 34 billion in income. 34 billion in income, that's, that's $34 billion that's no longer getting you know, taxed by New York City because of their oppressive tax and regulatory policies. And now state, it's gone so bad, state lawmakers are now pleading with companies, please don't leave us. At the same time that they're passing tax and regulatory policies that punish them for staying. So, so the, these policymakers are making this emotional appeal to businesses to say that, well, no, 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 don't leave. We need your tax revenue for our schools and our infrastructure projects. But if they stay, they're going to punish their success 
They're going to come after them. They're going to make it harder for them to run their businesses. They're going to make it harder for them to employ people. They're going to make it harder for wages to go up. They're going to do all those things. But, but what, just please stay? That's your, that's your pitch, New York? And of course, the federal government, not to be outdone, they're now coming in and they want to raise corporate taxes at the federal level. So if you look at corporate taxes from, from the state level, from the federal level, it would now go up as high as 32%. So just, just look at that right now. 32% of every dollar that, that comes into a corporation now belongs to the government, either or state or federally. So how does that match up with the rest of the world or the, or the rest of the industrial world, the developed world? We, we would pretty much have at that point one of the highest corporate tax rates in the world. So if, if you're thinking about incorporating or starting a business or you want to expand your business, here's my question. If you know that your taxes are about to skyrocket to some of the highest in the world, are you, are you going to expand? Are you going to do business in the United States? Are you going to hire more people? Are you going to buy more capital equipment? Are you going to give a pay raise? No, you're not going to do any of those things because your tax burden is about to go up significantly. And this is another part of the way that the media and politicians manipulate the use of language. I want you to hear this. Because a lot of times when people hear a corporate tax rate, what they think to themselves is, oh, that's something a corporation is paying. Let me be very clear about this. Corporations don't pay taxes. Now, some of you heard that and you thought, well, that's the problem. No, no, what I mean by that is they can't pay taxes. Only people can pay taxes. Only people can pay taxes. There's not some corporate entity that is essentially fitting the bill for all of this. Corporations are made up of people. That's it. So if you raise corporate taxes, you're raising taxes on people. And you're not just raising it on the boardroom. In fact, a, a recent study that was put out in the Foundation for Economic Education did a good article on this. The Tax Foundation has also some good research on this. And what they find is that 50 to 70% of a corporate tax increase is actually paid by less wages. Right? So it, it's, it's the workers. It's the investors. It's the people who's got 401ks. They're the ones paying this tax because all taxes are paid by people. There's not some legal entity that pays the tax. It's always paid by a person. And the more oppressive you make it, the more confiscatory you make it, the more likely someone is either you're going to stop engaging in productive activity or they're going to move their business somewhere to where they're not being punished for doing business. So, so what, what's, and, and, and again, there was, there was three different things that the, I think it was the tax foundation came up with. They said that if we raise this, if it goes up to 32% between state and federal, this is going to hurt American competitiveness, right? That should be obvious. Because if, if a corporation over in, you know, let's say Germany or Ireland is taxed at a significantly lower rate, that means it's cheaper to do business from a corporate tax perspective somewhere else than the United States. So American competitiveness is hurt. American corporations that choose to stay in America that continue to do business are now put at a competitive disadvantage with those corporations in other countries which are not being taxed at the same rate, right? That's obvious. Your competitiveness goes down. So what does this end up resulting in? Well, it's probably going to result in the elimination of over about 150,000 jobs, which this is incredible. Like as soon as Biden got into office, right, he shut down the Keystone Pipeline, which that cost tens of thousands of jobs. Now he wants to raise corporate taxes, which is also going to cut tens of thousands of jobs. And all of this results 
in shrinking the economy. Because I, I know Joe Biden and a lot of people on the left think that as long as we have the printing press up in Washington, D.C., we can just keep forking out more paychecks to people. Well, that's not a paycheck. That's either inflation or it's redistribution. And if you're going to punish someone for working and you're going to reward them for not working, what do you think you're going to get more of? If you're going to tell an American company, we're going to make it harder for you to do business in the United States, but it's easier to do business overseas, where do you think the company is going to go for? And then you're going to come back and you're going to lambast those companies for being evil profit mongers. Well, wait a second, who's the greedy one here? Right? Is it, is it the business owners and the investors and the workers which want to be able to keep more of what they earn based off of what they produce? Or is it the politicians that want to constantly steal things from other people so they can hand it out to other people in the hopes that they'll vote for them? Who's being greedy in that scenario? Because I, I don't think it's the entrepreneurs, I don't think it's the investors, and I don't think it's the workforce. I think it's the politicians. Not to mention the fact that it's not like we don't know what happens when you actually lower taxes. I mean, if, if you don't like the fact that when Donald Trump lowered taxes in 2017, it led to significant wage increases in 2018. Like the, the, the biggest single jump in, in actual wages in 20 years happened as a result of the tax cuts that we saw in 2017. Why? Because we told businesses, we told entrepreneurs, we're not going to punish you for doing business in the United States. We're going to make it easier for you to do business in the United States. So what they do? They hired more people. They expanded their staff. They produced more products and services that we all wanted. But that was evil, mean, and greedy. So, so now they're going to correct that by punishing people for producing the things that we want. It's, it's, and, and look, if you don't like the Trump example, fine. Go back to John F. Kennedy. Let's pick a Democrat. He also lowered taxes. And what did we find? We found that the American people did better. Business was able to expand. Wages went up. You want to know what also happened as a result? The government actually got more tax dollars. That's right. Because if you raise the taxes so much to where you actually reduce productivity or you encourage businesses to spend more time figuring out what, what country they're going to move to because they don't want to do business in the United States or, the, or they don't want to keep their production capacity within the United States, or if, if businesses are now in, you know, more focused on finding tax loopholes than they are actually producing products and services that make all of our lives better, not only does the economy do worse, not only do individual laborers do worse, but the government actually takes in less money. Why? Because less is being produced. Right? A 90% a tax on a on million dollars is not going to bring in as much as a 20% tax if the people that are actually making the million dollars leave the country. A 90% tax on nothing produces nothing. A 20% tax or a 25% tax on somebody that's willing to continue to work and labor and produce, that does actually bring in revenue to the government. So th this is not that difficult to figure out. If you punish productivity, if you make it more expensive and more onerous to do business with the United States, fewer people will do business within the United States. So thank you very much. Again, another thing that's going by here, and the media is going to report on it as Joe Biden wants to spend another $2 trillion. And you're thinking that in terms of, of stimulus checks or infrastructure spending. Well, no, the, the way that they're going to get that money is by borrowing it, which is just debt onto future generations. It's just a, it's a bill that comes to you know, be paid later. Or they're going to increase your taxes. And if they're increasing taxes, on the very economic engine that creates greater prosperity within the United States, 
they're going to harm the economy at the same time that they're professing to help it. But the idiocy, the idiocy does not stop there. Let, let's move on to COVID real quick. Because I, I saw a really interesting article um, from, from Mihir Sharma and Bloomberg. And the whole article was basically this person saying that after COVID, they, they really hope that we keep wearing the masks Be, because they've experienced a health benefit from, from wearing the masks. Okay, I, I got a compromise for you. I got a compromise for you. If you would like to continue to wear a mask, be my guest. Totally your right to do it. I, I will not in any way, shape, or form interfere with your ability or your right to wear a mask wherever you want to go. But the idea that you want to perpetuate this as a positive health feature within society, give me a break. I mean, my gosh, at what point, I mean, forget the fact that we've had recent studies come out of Denmark where they took a very, very large sampling. I think it was over 6,000 people where they had um, you know, people with masks, people without masks, and then they look at the overall efficacy of it, right? Is it actually producing the results that we hoped? And what they found is, lo and behold, it, it really wasn't. Now, now, does this mean that there's, there's no benefit whatsoever to wearing a mask? No, not necessarily. There, there, there can be benefits to wearing a mask. Are there also consequences? Yeah, there are consequences. Are some of those consequences associated with health? Yes, they are. But it, it's amazing to me that, and we saw this with vaccines too, right? Once you get a vaccine, oh no, you still got a social distance. You still got to wear a mask. You still got to do everything that you would have to do. But now you also have to do this. I mean, at what point are we not just a little bit skeptical that there might be something more going on here than just health concerns? And, and while we're on the topic of vaccines, this, this is interesting. <laughs> the Biden administration has found that Americans prefer vaccinations at pharmacies over expensive mega sites, right? So in an effort to push vaccines out to people, um, the left did what the left always likes to do, and that is they try to control it through a, a central apparatus. And so they spent tons of money on this, tons of money on this. And, and you, can, you can see them shifting the goalposts when instead of telling you that, hey, more people that wanted the vaccine were able to get the vaccine, right? That's not the, that's not the objective anymore. Or the, the no, overall number of cases have gone down or deaths have gone down. That's not the objective anymore. Now they start talking about how much money they're spending or how many things they are doing. But really what this ends up being is, is a conversation about centralization versus decentralization of distribution. Turns out the government is not all that great at efficiently distributing things. And we already talked about this once before. You actually had a case in South Carolina where they had a main distribution point where there was huge lines. There was, there was tons of problems with people being able to get the vaccine when they wanted it. And so what did the local mayor do? He actually called up the manager of a local Chick-fil-A. And the Chick-fil-A manager went down there, took a look at how they were running their lines, completely reoriented in line with what Chick-fil-A does. And people were flying through there and getting what they need. Why? Because the private sector is far better at figuring these things out in an efficient and effective way than some government bureaucracy sitting up in Washington, D.C. Right? You, you, you don't see the private sector bragging about how much money they spent on something. They brag about the value that they actually convey to customers. How many people actually wanted their services, used their services, got what they needed from their services? Well, not the federal government. As long as they're spending your tax dollars at a you know, breakneck pace, apparently they're doing something. So, so once again, what do we learn from this? Well, again, the media, the politicians, everyone changes the goalpost 
to say, oh my gosh, look at, look at how Joe Biden and the federal government is really doing something now. When in reality, if we would have had a far more decentralized process for getting these vaccinations out to people, we would have done it more effectively and more efficiently. But effectiveness and efficiency is not something that the federal government seems all that concerned about, especially not when they've got a press that is willing to essentially come in and manipulate the news in order to make it look like because they spent more money or because they gave more money away or because they set up mega facilities, they're doing their job. The measure of success for something like vaccine distribution is not how much money you spent or how many mega sites you set up. It's how many people that wanted the vaccine were able to get the vaccine. And what they're now finding out is more decentralized processes are far better at doing that. What a shocker. So that's, look, that's, that's a once over the world of some of the things that you saw in the news. Again, one of the, one of the objects here on making the argument is we listen to Don Lemon so you don't have to. Now, if, if you are, I don't know, if you're, you feel like you need to punish yourself or, I don't know, do penance for something, then watching Don Lemon for a solid five minutes um, should absolve you of a significant amount of sin because it is painful to watch, painful to watch. But that's the sort of, again, manipulation that we see going on. And I think it's important that you know how to respond to some of this. How do you respond to the arrogance and condescension you see coming out from someone like Don Lemon, who, who in nine minutes gave a monologue that was nothing more than a series of logical fallacies holding hands dressed up as objective journalism. But then also drawing your attention to the other things that are, that are coming out right now that may not be grabbing your attention because they're not grabbing headlines. And that's why it's important to understand that not only is the government response to COVID when it comes to things like vaccines or mass mandates are not achieving the desired results, but then their other solution on the economic side is to continue to tax and punish people for doing business in the United States at a time when, by the way, we need economic development more than ever. That's what they're going to punish. And so here, here's, the, here's the breakdown, right? Here's the argument when, when this stuff comes up. With respect to the Second Amendment, it is a right, not a privilege. A privilege is something that can be arbitrarily taken away from you for almost any reason. That is not what the Second Amendment is. This argument that the right doesn't want to do anything about gun violence because we don't like the, the so-called solutions left, that is a false narrative. We do want to do something. We've articulated what we want to do. We want to punish people that are actually using guns in an inappropriate, violent, and evil way. That's our solution. Their solution is we want to punish all the people that never did anything with their firearms in an inappropriate, violent, or evil way. And the compromise between those two positions is not adopting both of them. The compromise is to actually use facts and evidence to get to what we actually need to do in order to reduce gun violence, and really, really, to reduce any sort of violence against innocent people. And I don't see how you achieve that by disarming law-abiding citizens that have done nothing wrong, and essentially then putting them at the mercy of somebody that might use violence against them. Right? That's the second point. When it comes to Democrats using the argument that Dan Rather used, that, that this new debate about the Second Amendment and, and drawing parallels to civil rights, he's absolutely correct, just not in the way he thinks. Because your Second Amendment rights are a part of your civil rights. That is an essential civil liberty. You being able to defend yourself and not having to rely on a government agency or agent for your own protection is a part of your civil liberties and is absolutely fundamental to a free society. And the party that is trying to deny you that right is the same party that has a history 
of denying people their rights and essential civil liberties. So Dan Rather is right, just not in the way he thinks. Right? When it comes to voting rights, look, we can have a discussion about what is too onerous versus is what is too loose and, and is prone to creating greater voter fraud. But if the left is going to come and say that any time we have any sort of, of law that just says something as simple as when you show up to vote, we want to make sure that you are casting a, a, a legal ballot. Right? To say that that is tantamount to voter suppression or desire to want to take away your voting rights is absurd. Because when somebody casts a fraudulent ballot, that is also an attack on representative government. That is an attack on voting rights. And if they're not willing to address that, that that is also a threat to, to the integrity of our elections, then I'm not willing to believe that they're serious about this. I, I, am, I am all for making it easier for legal citizens to be able to vote and to remove as many onerous restrictions as possible. But I do think it's reasonable to also suggest that we should make sure that somebody is not manipulating our system in order to achieve electoral results that don't reflect the actual will of the people. When it comes to taxes, the, again, the big takeaway with this is that Joe Biden and states like New York and states like Virginia are looking for new ways to punish productivity because that is essentially what is going to happen. Now, they can say all day long that, no, they're just taxing the rich in order to help everybody else out. If you are taxing job producers, you are going to get fewer jobs. And I would hope that we still live in a country where what people want is to be financially independent because they're able to find a job that, that supports them economically, that they find satisfying, that they find fulfilling. And we should be increasing those opportunities, not punishing the creation of those opportunities. But that's exactly what's going to go on, and you're going to see it if they drastically increase corporate taxes. You're going to see all the media talking about, oh, we're just taxing the rich. No, you're taxing job production. You're taxing products and services. You're taxing people's 401ks. And that will make us less competitive in the world economy, and it will hurt wage rates, and it will hurt job opportunities. That is what it will do. And when it comes to COVID, when it comes to vaccine distribution, again, the, the big thing to remember here is that we need to start being more skeptical about the, the ever-growing number of people associated with government that are constantly wanting to keep restrictions in place even as the threat goes down. I mean, lockdowns don't work even when the threat's high. That's what we've seen. The, the, the overall consequences from a complete lockdown, especially a sustained lockdown, is worse than the actual benefits that you get from the health benefits that you get from it. They've ignored that, but now they're talking about keeping on additional restrictions even after the height of the threat has passed. And that is something that should concern us because at some point that becomes, that becomes an instrument of social manipulation and using fear to constantly convince people that if they're not listening to whatever politician is putting out, then they're in danger or they're endangering someone else. And that's dangerous. All right, I want to thank you all for joining us today on Making the Argument. Also, I want to encourage you to go over to thewhyminutes.com. Uh, we just put out you know, a, a great video over there talking about why oppressive governments love gun control. And one of the things that we address in that video is this idea that a lot of the same people that are saying, well, guns are dangerous in the hands of private citizens, but of course the police and the military, they, they should be the only ones to have these guns. And what we do is we ask the question, if that's the litmus test, 
Well, then what's the history of government and guns? And specifically, what's the history of government and guns against unarmed populations? So it's a, it's a quick video. I encourage you to go over to theyminutes.com. Go look at it at YouTube. Tell us what you think about that. Once again, thank you for joining us uh, on Making the Argument, and we will see you next time. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.